Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing great. Mrs. B and I still here in lovely Dunedin, Florida, enjoying the sunshine. Feeling bad for my friends. They're back in Wyoming. It's like seven degrees there and nasty. And we're looking forward to getting back, but I have to admit, we do not, do not hate this weather. It's awesome. And it's fun hanging out with our kids and all the other good stuff that comes along with it. So we're good. How about you? I'm great, man. And speaking of perfection, that's what we're talking about today. The franchise sting. We never thought this day would come. He is the face of WCW my entire life. And he's finally going to debut for the WWE and make his Monday night raw debut. Most importantly, it just feels like it shouldn't be, but it happened and it happened. I can't believe it. Five years ago, January 19th, 2015. And we're going to do this watch along style. I don't know that Eric has ever seen this show. It's two hours and 10 minutes. Fire up your WWE network and go to raw, which is easy. It's on your little top bar of your network. Then you'll click 2015, scroll down to January 19th, 2015, a very special raw reunion. So lots of stars on this show. We'll talk about the news and notes leading into it and get Eric's real life reaction to watching how they debut sting on Monday night. Raw. What a weird and interesting time to be a wrestling fan. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and, uh, verify with Eric that we're all on the same page, but you need to have the network pulled up now, Eric, are you ready? I'm ready, man. Let's do it. We're going to do a quick countdown. Three, two, one play. And when I say play, you'll press play. If you're watching on a computer, you'll see when you first open it up, it gives you a skip intro option on the bottom, right? We're not going to do that. We're going to start at absolute zero, 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 zero. And we're going to go with the play in three, two, one play. Here we go. Three, two, one play. Eric, I love the signature open the then now forever. feels like it's a big part of WWE. And I love, especially since they've got everything on the network now embracing all of the old stuff. Uh, I think this is a, a clever little open what, 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 you know, I've never talked about this. What do you think about that concept? I've always loved, uh, I've always loved this kind of an open when you pay homage to, you know, the legends and, and the icons that so many people remember from different eras of their fandom. Um, and I, I just think it's a really classy way to do it and, and to, to open a show. It just makes it feel important and, and, and it makes everything that you're about to see kind of feel important. So I, I dig it. I, uh, I like that they, they, uh, open with Martin Luther King clips. Of course, this episode aired on Martin Luther King day, uh, which today is actually five years ago. And today, same, same, same Martin Luther King day here. Um, Vince McMahon, he gets this one, right? I feel like sometimes maybe, maybe they don't pay enough tribute here or there. Uh, but clearly he had a, a lot of respect for Martin Luther King. 
He did, and he and he does to, to this day. You know, when I was there this past summer for a few months, um, there was more than one occasion where uh, Vince uh, made a comment out of respect uh, for Martin Luther King. So I, I know it's it's genuine with with Vince. So this is going to be an interesting show. We've got all the news and notes sort of leading into this show. Um, WWE would formally announce in mid January that WrestleMania 32 or the WrestleMania we're, uh, going to be talking about next year. So not this year, as you may remember this year's, uh, is going to happen out in California. Um, but here they're talking about running at Cowboy stadium, April 3rd, 2016. And they're going to boldly state their goal at this press conference saying they're going to pack the place with 105,000 fans, which would be a record that would easily eclipse WrestleMania three. It's a big announcement that you're going to hold a WrestleMania in Dallas. And I guess, you know, if, if you had it, if you had your druthers and time was an age, weren't really a thing, it would have been pretty cool to see sting make his WrestleMania debut in Dallas, but, uh, we see it instead happen out in California. What a venue. Do you think you would have been so bold to try to run a big football stadium like that for a lot like, and obviously you did a lot of, of stuff at the, uh, the Georgia dome and a few other domes, but 105,000 people, my goodness. Yeah. I don't, I don't think we would have attempted that. Look, <clears throat> even at the peak of WWE success with nitro and let's call it 1997 probably would be the peak, I guess, in, in terms of, you know, drawing an audience, uh, both on television, pay-per-view and, and our live audience, uh, we wouldn't have gotten anywhere close to a WrestleMania type number. You know, you get WrestleMania is an event in and of itself, meaning even if you're a very passive wrestling fan, when WrestleMania comes to town, you're going to go. Uh, you may not watch the show every week. You may not buy a lot of the other pay-per-views. You may check in with the product every once in a while. Uh, but when WrestleMania comes around, it's it's a big damn deal. It's it's much like the Super Bowl. You know, Super Bowl, the, the NFL Super Bowl has become an event unto itself. And even, you know, passive, you know, football fans you know, will drop into a Russell, or excuse me, to a Super Bowl. And you, you go to the Super I was in the supermarket the other day <clears throat> and Everywhere you look, there's, you know, Super Bowl type of promotions going on within the store. And, and I think WrestleMania is maybe not quite <laughs> quite that popular, but it's damn close. So to answer your question now, we would have never tried to to attempt anything that big because it, it wouldn't have worked for us. Starting the show with the Big Bang, Brock Lesnar out first. It's funny to think, you know, how much the wrestling business has changed in five years. But uh, it, it's like the old, uh, the old cliche, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Here comes Brock Lesnar with the championship. And of course his advocate, Paul Heyman, it doesn't look or feel all that different. By the way, this is very much a 2015 week here on my, uh, string of podcasts tomorrow with Arn Anderson. We'll be covering the Royal rumble 2015, which is the pay-per-view that happened just six days after this. And unfortunately it begins. Um, I think most agree in hindsight now a comedy of errors with the way they were handling Roman Reigns. Roman Reigns is going to win that Royal Rumble and get booed out of the building. I think a lot of uh, WWE fans were on the Roman Reigns train and still, until it started to feel like he was sort of being pushed down our throats a little bit. And you even saw in the open of this show, the signature for Raw, he is the last character that you see before the big pyro and the introduction of the talent to open the show. 
in the little bit that you've kept up with, uh, WWE, you know, in the, in the 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017 era, did you have an opinion as to whether or not they were perhaps handling Roman reigns the right way? No, I did. And I, I, I to a degree, I still do. <clears throat> um, it's really interesting. You know, wrestling fans are, they're a very, very interesting audience in that, first of all, they're, they're smart. You know, they, they know what you're doing. They know what you're trying to do. They know when you are pushing a character and you've got to be very cognizant that you're not pushing them down their throat. And, and, and that's not just true with, with regard to Roman Reigns back here in 2015 or whenever it was. Um, it's true across the board. You've, it's got to happen organically. The audience has got – you have to be aware, I think, as a producer, promoter, whatever you want to call it. You've got to be aware and have a sense of the audience's desire and tease them with a character. If you have somebody – I'll take Roman Reigns' name out of it. But if you have character A that you really think is marketable, you really think is going to be your next John Cena, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Rock, Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair, you name it. If you have that character and you really believe in it, I think positioning that character in a way that the audience is dying to see that character you know, make that next big move and become the face of the company, that's how it works. And if you step over that line and you push it too hard and you try to expedite it or you try to force feed it or speed it up, whatever you want to call it, and you do it before the audience is ready, they'll turn on you. They just will. And it's hard to unturn them. You know, once they've kind of developed that opinion collectively that, oh, my God, they're pushing, you know, wrestler A down our throat. They want this guy to be our you know, the, the next face of the of the company, so to speak they'll they'll fight it with everything they've got and we've seen it over and over and over again you know you i think wrestling fans uh, in my opinion i've I've read i've heard i've listened to people face to face you know talk to me about who should get a push and who shouldn't get a push and how hard they should be pushed and once damn once they make up their minds it's really hard to convince them otherwise and i think the mistake that they made with roman reigns was pushing him too hard too soon in a direction that the audience really didn't want him to go. And look, same thing happened to John Cena to a degree. Uh, John Cena was able to overcome it. WWE was able to overcome it. Um, but we've seen it, you know, a number of times when you're just pushing somebody that the audience doesn't really accept. As you see here, we're, uh, eight minutes into the show and Triple H is now coming out to interrupt the promo of Brock Lesnar, where Brock had interrupted his uh, advocate and he's calling out Seth Rollins, but instead, uh, part of the, the authority Triple H is out. I feel like for a long time, right or wrong, Triple H started Monday night raw with a long promo segment and it almost became formulaic, you know, whereas Almost. Okay. There you go. <laughs> well, I'm just saying we saw a lot of nitros start with the luchadors, but we see a lot of Monday night Raws start with a promo, particularly with triple H in hindsight, how big of a, of a, of a hindrance do you think that is for frustrated or lapsed fans that it feels a little same? and there's a sameness with 
the show starting with a promo every single week. I, I think it's true. And and that's one of the I don't want to call it a critique. I'll call it an observation. But that's one of the the observations I've had about WWE in general uh, for a long time is that it, as great as they are and they are. I want to preface this and, and make sure I'm clear about this. This is not a criticism. This is just a perspective based on my tastes. But when a show becomes so formulaic, as you pointed out, when the format becomes so standard and you see the same thing, especially, you know, you know, a live action, live event show, you know, like Monday Night Raw or like Nitro was, um, and you see the same basic open, you see the same clothes, you see the same talent, you see the same style of interviews, nothing really ever changes. Uh, it's boring. And, and it, 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 you kind of kill that desire that you want to develop in the audience to, oh man, I can't wait to see what happens next week because you know what's going to happen next week. It's the same thing basically that happened the week before. And that's, that's one observation, not a criticism I have of the show. Now look, it's working very well for WWE. It has for a long time. I think even now you watch uh, the show and there's just a, a sameness to it. There's a filter that's that exists within the creative process and in order for ideas, concepts, formats, shows to get through that filter and make it to your TV screen, um, they end up being so similar in, in so many ways that it's hard to get excited about it. I got to tell you, this version of Kane, corporate Kane, I really, really enjoyed. Of course, the authority here is made up of Stephanie and Triple H, and then they've got a lot of folks under their employee here. So you see their quote-unquote heavy is going to knock you out as big show, but Kane in a suit, one of the many different versions of Kane. And since behind the scenes, uh, we know at this point that he's got political aspirations, not yet the mayor, but we know now he is. It's a fun, it, it adds another dimension to Glenn Jacobs. And I actually enjoy it. I do too. And I, you know, I'm going to talk a little bit about Glenn Jacobs here for a moment. Um, I, I got to know Glenn a little bit. You know, not real well. We didn't hang out, you know, after shows and that type of thing. But we did a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot. We did several um, promotional appearances together, radio shows together and things like that, promoting different events. And Kane Glenn Jacobs, I think, is probably one of the smartest people, intelligent people, well-read people um, when it comes to history and politics um, that I've ever met in the wrestling business. He's a very, very intelligent guy, really a, a humble guy, easy to be around, fun to work with. Um, can't say enough great things about Glenn Jacobs. And, and, and I'm glad he's, he's where he's at as mayor because he's a, he, he, a very political guy, but a very, very smart and, and balanced individual. Can't say enough good things about him. I did take a choke slam from him that broke my hand once, but that's another story. Okay. <laughs> First of all, you're fucking crazy. <laughs> Secondly, as you're as you're doing this read, right? Now I'm watching and and I encourage you, if you do not if you're listening to this anywhere in the world because this is a global enterprise. 83 83 weeks reaches all four corners of the globe, all right? No matter where you're watching, if you don't have WWE network, order it right freaking now. And watch along with this podcast because as Conrad as Conrad's reading this manscape copy, and I'm not even gonna try to repeat what he said because I'll I'll kill it. 
I'm watching Stephanie McMahon's reaction to John Cena's promo. And as I'm listening to Conrad and looking at Stephanie McMahon's face, it's almost like she's hearing your read. (laughs) (laughs) It is the most hilarious shit I think I've seen in a long time. It is so funny as you're talking about nicking your nuts and Stephanie McMahon's eyebrows raised and she gets this weird look on her face and it's just hilarious. Please do it. You'll, You'll be glad you did. You can thank me later. I, uh, I want to point out we are now 15 minutes and 30 seconds in people are still talking. No one has touched yet. There is no, and and they probably haven't really said all that much either. (laughs) I mean, 15, you know, promos in in my, again, my opinion, just my opinion. And believe me, I've, I've made this mistake. I've done it the wrong way. I've, I've gone out there and babbled for too long. Hell, I do it on this show. You get caught up in the moment, I guess. But, you know, for a promo to to go on for six or eight or 10, 12 minutes, it better have a hell of a finish. You know, a a, a promo, in my opinion, it it should be based on a three-act structure, just like any good book, any good movie, any good television commercial, any good infomercial, whatever it is. You have a beginning and a middle and an end. And a promo, if you're going to spend this much time on a promo – it better mean something big by the time you get to the end of it, or you just, you kill your audience because it's people come because they want to see action. They want to see conflict. They want to see the resolution of that conflict. They don't want to get lectured to. And that's what these promos sometimes, and again, I'm not being critical. I'm talking about in general, not this particular promo, by the way, because I can't even hear it. It could be a great promo and it could be a, a great kind of three act structure within this promo. I don't know. I can't hear it. But generally speaking, if you're going to be out there for 8, 10, 12 minutes, by God, it better be entertaining. There is one entertaining thing that uh, Seth says here. He says, you know, John Cena is going to tuck his leg between his legs. And uh, Cena plays into that misstatement and says, I don't know how I'm going to tuck my leg between my legs. So I love that, that John is very comfortable with this process and he had a lot of fun as guys would get nervous and, uh, maybe say the wrong thing here. He had no problem exploiting it. He was so comfortable on the mic. I mean, it's hard to compare anybody, uh, to the rocks and Austin's just based on their, their star level and their, and their perception from the fans of their star level. But when it came to, you know, giving guys shit on the mic, John Cena is probably one of the more underrated performers of all time. Well, and I mean, that says, I mean, obviously, in fact, later today, I'm taking, um, some kids, uh, they're not really related to me. They're my daughter-in-law's nephews, but I'm taking uh, four of them to go see the Dr. Doolittle movie that John has seen is in. Um, we're, as soon as I'm done with this podcast, we're going to be heading over to the movie theater this morning. And John you know, his, he, he may not be at that rock status yet. He, I don't know if he will be, or maybe he'll be bigger than rock. Who knows what, what, what the future holds, but he's a hell of an actor and he's having a tremendous amount of success, uh, in, in the movie industry. And I think one of the reasons, and there's a lot of reasons for it, obviously, but going back to promos and listening and reacting, I think one of the things that you're talking about here with respect to to John Cena is he listens. He's reacting to what the person he's in a promo with is saying. Oftentimes, 
And I've, I've experienced this so many times over the last 30 years. You get out there, especially with somebody who's nervous or somebody who's green or doesn't have a lot of experience on the mic. And they spend so much time memorizing what they're going to say that when they go out there to cut their promo, they're not really listening to what the the, per, the person who they're doing a promo with is saying. They're 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 focusing solely on what they remember they're supposed to say. So in the case, like you pointed out here with Seth Rollins, where he kind of steps on it and makes a blunder, if John had not been listening and reacting the way an actor should to, to what Seth Rollins was saying, he would have blown right by that because he would have been thinking about what he's going to say next based on what John had memorized. And I, I think that's one of the, things that the talent today can do if they really want to improve their promos. It's not necessarily about always having, you know, really sharp one-liners and in, 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 in your delivery, probably 75% of what makes a good promo is your reaction to the person you're in the promo with. Right. And if that's organic and natural and believable, then the, then the promo comes off great. Otherwise, you got two people out there just reciting dialogue that they memorize, and that's where you disconnect with the audience more often than not. So we're we're still going. We're we're, we're past the twenty minute mark, but Hunter has just laid out the gauntlet that, uh, as we saw at Survivor Series, a lot of guys lost their jobs, um, because the the authorities team won. But John Cena has a chance to win those jobs back tonight because he's going to give him a match. And if he wins, Ryback, Eric Rowan, and Dolph Ziggler are hired back. And if he loses, then not only are they still fired, but Cena will give up his opportunity to be in the triple threat match. So those are our stakes that have been established. But Lord, it has taken us 21 minutes and counting to get here. Yeah. I just think about... You know, and I realize wrestling's changed, but I think about the old studio shows, uh, from the NWA and WCW, the Saturday 605 shows. And, you know, yes, there were a lot of promos on that show, but man, there was never a 20 minute horseman promo, you know, that yes, they would have a few minutes, but 21 minutes is an absurd amount of time in a show, especially if you think about, you know, in the old school you know, well, we've got an hour long show. And of course this is a different era. We've got a three hour raw here, which is, as we know, sometimes a chore to get through. And I guess if you're trying to fill three hours of content, 52 weeks a year, not counting all the other shows that you're doing, just talking about raw, that can be quite the challenge as we get to the 22 minute mark. And, uh, it looks like we're finally finishing the segment, a third of the show, you know, in, in, in the old hour long way of doing things. Would have been committed to this one segment. And as we're, you know, we're, if, if you're not watching along with us, if you're driving to work or you're doing something else and, and not able to do the watch along as you were watching uh, John Layfield, Michael Cole and Booker T at the announce booth, right square behind Michael Cole is a, is a great shot of an NWO shirt. Still one of the hottest pieces of merchandise in the WWE catalog to this day. Always makes me feel good. It's worth mentioning. They're doing an NWO reunion on this. You know, something that stood out to me, uh, when they showed the announcer desk, you saw JBL on the left, Booker T on the right. And of course, Michael Cole, right in the middle of things, a three man desk, you know, they have 
over the years flirted with two men in the booth, three men in the booth, but allegedly, according to the rumor and innuendo, um, Vince McMahon saw the, you know, overwhelming outpouring of support for Stuart Scott when he passed away in early January, 2015 and immediately made the decision that moving forward, they needed to have African-Americans represented at the desk. And so if you go back and you look from about this show forward, there's always been a black person behind the desk. Uh, and, and a few weeks ago now, as we're recording this in 2020, now uh, maybe a couple of months now, Dio Madden was, uh, an African-American commentator on Monday night raw. He of course suffered an attack. He was replaced by Samoa Joe and now raw looks like it may be the exception, but that was something that Vince McMahon felt very, very strongly about, uh, because Stuart Scott was very much, um, a big part of, of sports center and sports and sports casting. And as the most prominent African-American when, when ESPN and sports center were first sort of rising to prominence, he made quite the impression one that got Vince's attention and, and looked like there was going to be an audible called from there on. Bray Wyatt, as we're uh, watching now, making his way to the ring with Daniel Bryan. It's amazing the journey that <clears throat> Bray Wyatt has been on, having so so much success now with that Fiend character. It, really fun watching that character, the Fiend character, evolve and develop and really excited. It's probably one of the hottest things in WWE, possibly in the last four or five years, from, from my perspective at least. I, Business-wise, I, I, I don't have any inside information, but just seeing the kind of reaction that it's been getting and the merchandise information that I've read about publicly, not privately. Um, obviously a, a really, really successful character for WWE and happy for Bray Wyatt. Look at the crowd reacting to Daniel Bryan here. We're about 18 months after yet. Uh, he got super hot going back to uh, SummerSlam the prior year when he finally, even before SummerSlam, but at SummerSlam, it looks like they were finally going to pay it off. He was going to have his big moment as we know. That didn't happen. Uh, that would have been SummerSlam 2013, rather. Um, but going back, even you know, uh, or, or fast forwarding a little bit, we know that uh, WrestleMania in New Orleans the prior year became all about the Daniel Bryan show. It didn't feel like that was the original plan. Certainly, it wasn't. Uh, but they eventually caved and gave the audience what they wanted, and as a result, the fans have have really adopted Daniel Bryan as their guy. We know that his title run in 2014 wasn't exactly what it could have been. He was injured, had to take a break. His title run cut short. Uh, but now that he's back, fans are excited that he's back and they expect him to be the top guy. And we know that's going to lead to uh, a questionable decision that they're going to make with the Royal Rumble. Fans really wanted Daniel Bryan and only Daniel Bryan to win the Royal Rumble in six days. And you see the reaction he got coming out. A, a true hero's welcome. It's interesting that they put him in the first match on the show and not the first segment on the show. Um, but he had worked hard to get this spot back and, and you see his connection with the audience is real and probably took a lot of training to get to this spot after a layoff like that. You want to make sure that when you're back, you're back in a big way. And, it, and, uh, we see Daniel Bryan here in a precarious spot. I absolutely love this version of the Daniel Bryan character. I know you really like the Fiend character. I know it's even before Bruce was back, whenever we would take a question on, on our podcast, something to wrestle here on Westwood one on Fridays, 
the question would come up, Hey, is there one character you wish you could work with and produce segments for today in the more modern era? And every time with that exception, it was Daniel Bryan, uh, not Daniel Bryan, sorry, uh, Bray Wyatt. So I know for sure that he has had a lot of fun working with this Bray Wyatt character, but I liked this sort of, uh, cult leader, you know, the, the whole, I, I like even the, the Hawaiian shirt and the interesting presentation with the lantern and the fireflies and the audience. It's different, man. And it's so hard in wrestling because it feels like everything has been done. This at least feels different. That's, I think you, you hit it right on the head. You know, it's one of the biggest challenges today and in any wrestling company, not just WWE, um, certainly with WWE, because they've got three hours on, on Monday night, two hours on Friday night, two hours on a Wednesday night. Although I, you know, next is a little NXT, I should say is a little different than obviously raw SmackDown in its presentation, but it's so hard to come up either with characters or storylines or anything else that feels different than what you've been seeing for such a long time. That's a challenge in the industry. And part of it is just because there's been so much content over the last 20 years, 25 years. And you look at it now, how many hours of content do we have? Wrestling content available to viewers today. You've got three hours on Monday Night Raw. You got two hours for SmackDown. Well, and you got two hours for NXT, right? Yeah, you got a Tuesday show. You've got the. Uh... Well, let's add it up. Let's yeah. add up. So, right just with WWE content, you've got uh, five, seven hours. Well, you've also, w- you've also got Backstage, which is an hour long show on Tuesdays. Okay, so what are we up to? Eight hours now? Nine? Yeah, so, so three plus one uh, is four, five, six, seven, eight. Yeah, there's eight hours for sure. Now you've got AEW. Oh, yeah, AEW makes 10, and so M- get- Impact makes 12. Yeah, you can't really count Impact, though. I mean, you've got to, you, you, fuck, you've got to be a, <laughs> you've got to be a scientist to find it. Um, they're on access just, now. I don't know that you have kept up with that, but they're on access now, which is at least a real channel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they were on, kind of, per, they were on pursuit before dude. Like pursuit is based out of Alabama, a, a, a national television station based out of Alabama. And of course it's about hunting like deer and shit like that. But somehow they had wrestling in there too. But just, you're talking about major cable platforms, right. you know, USA network, TNT, obviously Fox network, you know, you've got 10 hours of content each and every week available and with, and it's great content. Don't get me wrong. I'm not being critical, but the challenge when you have so much content out there across the different platforms with the different wrestling companies is how do you, how do you stand out? How do you, how do you produce something that doesn't, you know, create the feeling in the audience is, Oh, that reminds me of this or, Oh, that's just like that. You know, coming up with something that's very unique, and I think that's why the Fiend character is working so well, in addition to the fact that Bray Wyatt is just a phenomenal piece of talent, as we're seeing here in this match with Daniel Bryan. He's a big, big, powerful guy, but he moves like a 145-pound college wrestler. I mean, he's a very quick, fast, powerful uh, athlete. And to be able to come up with a character that feels so unique, that doesn't feel like, oh, yeah, that reminds me of... Something else is a real challenge for anybody in any wrestling company, whether you're a talent, whether you're a producer, 
whether you own the company, it doesn't matter. It's a real challenge. And I think that's one of the reasons why, in my opinion, again, just my opinion, when people go back and they talk about the Monday Night Wars and what a great period of time all that was, and I agree it was, but it was it, it was so great because we were able to do so – and I might say we, I mean WCW and WWF at the time, now WWE, were able to do so many things that nobody had ever seen before. And it just created such an intense interest in the business. And now it's it's really hard to, to, to achieve that. How do you do anything – that doesn't feel like you're just rehashing or doing something that's been done before. I think, you know, what we're seeing in today's environment is the athleticism is making up for a lot of that. There's a lot of pressure, I think, on the talent in the ring to present the product in a way that looks unique and feels unique and, and up the, the risk factor, if you will, and the athleticism and what's going on in the ring. But in terms of storylines and characters, it's much harder to create something that doesn't feel like a rehash. Well, Kane does not feel like a rehash here. Corporate Kane, of course, as we remember, he used to be the tag partner and even tag champion with Daniel Bryan as part of team hell no. Um, but now corporate Kane here, here to lay waste to Daniel Bryan. Uh, I want to talk about, you know, the amount of content and wrestling, something we were just talking about. In a minute, I want to back up and talk about that again, but in Daniel Bryan's book, uh, he wrote about, um, well, we'll talk about that another time. Cause that's going to get us down a sidebar that I know you'll enjoy, but we may never get back on track. If I talk about suntanning ones on butthole and, and the, the health to that, let's talk about adding another show because it feels like not that long ago, you and I sat down here and reviewed the very first episode of thunder. In fact, it was earlier this month. And when I sort of teased the idea that, Hey, hypothetically, what do you think about the idea of AEW looking at another show? And then it was announced this past week, uh, when it was revealed that NXT or not NXT, AEW rather had signed a new contract with TNT. That's going to guarantee that they're going to be around through 2023. And it was a significant money deal, uh, well over a hundred million dollars guaranteed now in revenue and uh, 40 some odd million dollars a year coming in for AEW. It was revealed that, Hey, they're working on a second show. Seemingly it would be taped on Wednesdays, be an hour long and, uh, air on uh, another day of the week somewhere on, on Turner, perhaps TNT, but perhaps another Turner channel. As soon as that bit of the announcement was released, man, our Twitter blew up because you and I had just talked about it and you sort of warned against that. When you saw that announcement this week, what'd you think? Well, first of all, I was really happy for everybody at AEW. I don't, I don't know, you know, other than, you know, some of the talent, um, I, I don't know Tony Khan. I've never met him, never talked to him. Um, but obviously very happy for them and, and happy for the business in general because it, it's making the industry all that much healthier and certainly happy for all of the talent, even the ones that I don't know because there's a, there's a lot of talent that has a great place to work that might otherwise not. Uh, so uh, generally across the board, very happy for them and, and for the business in general. That's my first reaction. My second reaction is – no, there's a lot I don't know. I have no idea what AEW's goals are. I have no idea what Turner's 
you know, goals or expectations are with regard to the AEW uh, brand and, and business. So, you know, given the fact that there's so much I don't know, my opinion really isn't worth all that much. I just am, am sharing my own personal experience in that if you don't have the right infrastructure, and by infrastructure, I'm, I mean budget and the, and the talent to support it, not just in-ring talent, but outside of the ring talent whether it's your production team, you know, your, your post-production team, whatever, all of the elements that go into delivering a great product or building a great business have to be there. And if you don't have that, as was my case, you know, at WCW when we were launching Thunder and the expectations were very high from TBS at the time, you know, Ted Turner wanted another uh, nitro, you know, type of, of, of success for the TBS network. It wasn't just, Hey, let's just put out another show and do the best we can. It, there was a lot of expectations, uh, from Ted on thunder and we didn't have the in infrastructure to pull it off. We stressed every part of our business from the talent in the ring to the talent that's required to put the show on, whether it's backstage production staff, post-production staff, whatever it is, we put a lot of stress uh, on our infrastructure, and it it took a toll. So my hope, and you know, is that with regard to another show for AEW, that number one, the expect expectations from the network side of things are in line, and they're they're not out of whack, and they're not expecting too much, uh, at least not right away. I'm hoping that the infrastructure within AEW can easily support another show without putting too much burden on the talent. And again, when I say talent, I mean talent across the boards, in the ring, out of the ring, production and everything that goes along with it. Um, and, and, and I think the last part of my observation would be, as we just said, there's 10 hours of wrestling available right now. Is there enough of an audience to sustain another hour? I mean, how much is too much? You know, we've seen this, I think, with sports in general, where, you know, it's like Major League Baseball. For God's sake, there's how many, what, 4,000 games a year before you get into the playoffs? You know, basketball. I mean, who really cares until you get into the latter part of the season? Um, football is a little bit different because of the nature of the sport. But how, how much can you sustain in the long term, not in the short term, but how much will the audience stay interested in? 10 hours, 11 hours, you know, soon to be, and probably more of wrestling content throughout the week. It just, it, it, to me, I think you run the risk potentially. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I hope it's not going to happen. But I think when there's that much content out there, um, you run the risk of, of losing that sense of, man, I got to tune in to see what's going to happen. Look at WWE. Let's use WWE as an example. You got your three-hour show, you know, on Monday night. You got two hours on on SmackDown. Let's leave NXT out of the equation for a minute. You know, I think one of the reasons that we're never going to see one of, not the only, but one of the reasons we're never going to see, you know, Raw delivering four, five, six million viewers like they used to, or SmackDown delivering what I think was probably the the expectation going into the Fox deal of being able to deliver three, four, five million viewers a week because you're on a, a, a network and you have a bigger audience potentially as a result of that. I think one of the reasons that it's not happening, Raw's numbers are flat. SmackDown is, for the most part, flat. 
even on the Fox network. It barely gets a bigger number than than Raw on cable. And I think one of the reasons for that within WWE isn't because of the talent, isn't because of the creative, it isn't because of anything other than the fact there's just so much of it out there that as a viewer, you don't feel compelled to need to tune in because you can watch something else two days later and that's pretty much the same thing. Or you can catch up online and find out what happened in a given match if you're interested in it. I just think because there is so much content that you reach a level of saturation that ultimately hurts or i don't say hurts but it, it prohibits you from reaching those big numbers that we used to see that the fact that there's you know the television landscape has changed so much and streaming platforms and all the other i don't want to call them excuses but kind of excuses why you're not seeing the kind of success that the business used to have in terms of the total number of viewers is because there's just so much out there that it doesn't feel i don't know it just doesn't feel compelling anymore how about after all these years, Hulk Hogan still getting a hero's welcome here, January 19th, 2015, as he's strutting to the ring. Um, one of the things that, you know, you've always championed as being when you did all your research and, and studies on what wrestling fans wanted back in the nitro era, unpredictability was number one. You know, they didn't want to be able to call it. They wanted to be surprised and. That certainly has not been the case with this particular episode of Monday night raw that we're reviewing so far. We've seen triple H three times. We saw him in the first 22 minute segment. Then we saw him in a backstage skit with his old pals from the click, uh, a hilarious interaction there that we talked over with, uh, Sean Waltman and Damien Sandow, uh, who at this time was doing the Mizdow character. But then, you know, at 41 minutes, we saw a recap of the 22 minute promo, which is just remarkable. Uh, and I think that one of the challenges that we have is if you are creating, you know, 10 hours of content a week, it's hard for every episode to be unpredictable because the unpredictability becomes predictable. Hmm. I have to chew on that. I think <laughs> you confuse me. It's early in the morning. I haven't had enough coffee. But I think the other part of it is going back to what I said earlier, you know, unpredictability you know, is doing something different that seems out of sequence. You would have never seen it coming, whatever that may be. And again, once you produce, and maybe this is what you're saying, and I just didn't um, hear it the right way. But I think one of the challenges you have when you produce this much content is what do you do? What do you do that doesn't feel like you've seen that before? Right. You know, and again, you had so much opportunity back in the late 90s and even into the you know early part of 2000s um, where you can pull stuff off like they did with Stone Cold Steve Austin and the, you know, the beer and the ice cream trucks or whatever it is, garbage trucks they would drive into the arena, all the crazy stunts that they used to be able to pull. Well, you can't you just can't go back to that well and surprise people with those kinds of I'll call them stunts, but those types of scenes any longer because you've just done it all. And there's a limit. There just is a limit to what you can do. And again, I, I, I don't think that's a, a criticism of anybody's creativity or lack thereof. I just think it's a, you know, part and parcel to producing so much content, it starts to feel repetitive. And to your point, what do you do that feels like, oh, my God, I didn't see that coming when you probably saw something very similar to it two, three, four weeks ago? That's, to me, the challenge. 
it's uh it's interesting to see on these reunion shows how they use the stars you know the first time we see the nwo they're backstage and they're with Shawn michaels and hunter and then waltman and then they have an interaction with uh, damian sandow and miz and then here the hometown boy comes out third and of course sean got dressed up for the occasion with his hunting boots and his hunting hat and his hunting shirt and his blue jeans uh, but he's coming out third with uh, Hulk Hogan out first and, and Flair in the middle. And of course, we're just a few days away from the Royal Rumble, and they've positioned this as being hey, these three guys have won Royal Rumbles. Let's get their take on what they think might happen with the Royal Rumble this Sunday. What do you think of their, their use of legends in this show? I think it's working, obviously. You know, the, the, Look at the audience, you know, I do. I don't think I can see one pretty, if, if you're not watching along with us, if you're driving or working or whatever you're doing, I don't know how many people are in this arena. I'm guessing probably what would you guess? 15, 18,000 people. Yeah. And I don't think one of them are sitting down. Everybody's on their feet. There's a lot of emotion. People are happy to see everybody. And I think the way they're using the legends here in this particular scene, as we see, you know, if you're not watching with us, Shawn Michaels is dressed up a little bit like Stone Cold Steve Austin, I guess, in his camo outfit and his hunting boots, as Conrad pointed out. You got Hulk Hogan in the middle, Ric Flair in his suit, and the audience is thrilled to see him. You know, you're getting a great, great reaction. It's a great use of, of the legends here. Byron Saxon, of course, is hosting the segment and they're pushing the WWE app in a major way. Of course, we know that. Uh, the network is just about a year in at this point, a little less, uh, and they're pushing it really, really hard here. And that was, a a gamble that Vince McMahon took to the whole, you know, Hey, let's, uh, let's upset the Apple cart with the pay-per-view model and let's try the network. And it required a lot of people to, uh, get comfortable with apps and, and, and navigating those apps that maybe hadn't before. And that's probably nothing big for most of our listeners here, but there is an older generation where, what do you mean to watch TV? We don't need our phones. Uh, so it took a little bit of coaching and they were definitely drilling it here from the, the time you were with WWE in the more recent era, how much of these sort of sales points do you think that the announcers had to get over? I guess I'm not really sure uh, so what the, you mean with so that the question. Concept being, back in the day, wrestling announcers talked about what they saw on their monitor. They told the stories. They talked about the angles. They talked about the issues. They talked about the heat. They described the moves that they were doing and why they hurt and what their motivation for hurting this guy was. These days, we've also got to make sure that we're reminding everybody to get that WWE network. There's a trial right now with promo code so-and-so. And so it, it's much more... Uh, hands-on selling messages from Vince McMahon, or at least that's what we've been led to believe that there's initiatives that Vince really wants to get across. So guys like Michael Cole have to spend less time talking about what's going on in the ring and more time trying to sell stuff. Yeah, I, I get that. Um, and, I, you know, I'm going to have to go back. Man, I'm going to watch a show or two uh, in the next couple of weeks. Uh, I actually, Mrs. B and I, are, as we're still here in Florida, we're, we've been kind of bouncing around into different homes. Uh, we're doing the Airbnb tour of Florida, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> and 
and every place that we've been in so far, you, you don't have uh, access to cable television. So I haven't been able to watch much really since the middle of November um, in terms of current product, um, which is really weird for me. I haven't been able to watch the news. I haven't been able to watch, you know, get access to SmackDown or Raw or AEW or anything since, like I said, around the middle of November when we left, left Stanford. Um, but you know, go back in time too. Go back and listen to an early show. Listen to Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone, Tony Schiavone calling uh, WCW, or, or in my case, when I was doing play-by-play, we were constantly pitching the magazine. You know, pitching hard you know, pay-per-view. I, so I, I think there's probably yeah. We you obviously you're hearing things now from your announcers talking about apps and so forth and, and pushing that type of thing. But if you go back into the, you know, mid nineties, late nineties, I think we probably spent just as much time pitching pay-per-view. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't know if we're selling more now than we were then we're selling. I say we, they're selling differently. Now they're selling a different product now than they were back in the mid nineties because of streaming and the app and so forth. But I don't know if the, if the, volume of that type of promotion is really that much different and going back again and i don't sit and watch hours and hours of wrestling so i may be wrong about that that's just my observation from this perspective but going back to what you said about the wwe app and the streaming platform and how bold of a move that was you know we all it's, it's funny how time changes your perspective on things but if you go back to 2000 and I don't know when exactly it was that it was announced that WWE was going to go to a streaming platform and change the way they delivered pay-per-views. But I remember when I first heard, heard it, whenever that was, it was like, now that is one ballsy move. That's the type of move that, that you know, when you make that move, you're really, again, my perspective without knowing all of the information, but I'm guessing that the pay-per-view revenue from DirecTV, Dish, so forth, satellite, was probably 25, 30% of the WWE bottom line back then. And I, I know it was with WCW, so assuming it was somewhat the same. To put that much of your revenue, which probably was about $100, $125 million a year at that time, I guess, to put that much of your revenue at risk for a new technology that may or may not work, that the audience may or may not adapt. Now, again, when 2020, every you know, as I just talked about, you know, I'm renting these houses here in Florida on vacation, and none of them have access to cable television because everybody's getting their 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 content on a streaming platform of of one or or another. But that was a big risk back then. Nobody knew for sure that the audience would adapt to it. And, you know, I, I can't listen. I'm obviously I'm not kissing anybody's ass for any reason other than just being honest about it. You talk about a ballsy move by Vince McMahon making that and, and the entire company making that commitment to divest yourself necessarily of direct TV and the traditional pay-per-view distribution model in hopes of building a streaming platform that would allow you to control all of your own content yourself was a ballsy, ballsy move. Without question. And obviously it's a gamble that wound up paying off. It is interesting though, that most uh, experts who monitor it look back and say, you know, had it not been for the 
increased television rights, it wouldn't have worked because the, the stock took this major bump up based on that more so than based on the network because the early projections, they didn't actually hit. So we've got somebody interrupting the segment. Who is it going to be the big show? That's the most fucked up looking outfit I've ever seen big show wear. Is that goofy or what? Describe that, Connor. I don't even know how to describe it. That's a singlet. Well, it's just, it's a low-cut singlet, about almost down to his belly button. And what's that pattern on that thing? Can you tell? Uh, I cannot. It looks like two strips of camo on either side, like gray, huh. like gray urban camo. It's that is pretty goofy looking, in my opinion. The. Uh... This show I actually got to be at, I, I went with Rick and, um, got to see him sort of talking through what they were going to do that day and put it all together. And it was fascinating to sort of see how the sausage was made. And this segment in particular, uh, there was lots of creative bandied about, and I got to see for the first time, not exactly that doesn't work for me, brother, but not too far apart. And, uh, it was sort of fun to see. So describe that. Let's let's describe the scene for for our listeners who aren't watching along. You've got Hulk Hogan, Shawn Michaels, and Ric Flair in the ring. Big Show's now cutting a promo. So when you said you got to watch the sausage being made and watch him lay out this promo, what aspect of it was not working for me, brother? Well, there's going to be some physicality, of course, and in this era, this is the 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 version of Big Show who is a knockout artist and. If he just says, I'm going to knock you out, he just rears back and punches them and boom, everybody goes to sleep. And in this case in particular, uh, they were sort of debating the creative of, Hey, what, what exactly should we do here? And I don't know. It was just fun to, to sort of see what about a big boot? What about three point? It's like, well, okay. And of course we know, you know, some of that's not actually going to come to fruition, but the idea that they had to navigate, Hey, how do we use these legends in a way where we sort of, uh, give the fans what they want, but at the same time, we're, we're putting over young talent too. You don't want to squash young talent, but it's hard. I guess at this age, it's hard to say that big show was quote unquote young talent, but he is still wrestling here. No, but he's day-to-day talent, and that's always a challenge. You know, when you bring in a guy like Hulk Hogan and Shawn Michaels and Ric Flair, you put him in the ring because the audience wants to see the legends get the upper hand. Absolutely. Right? They're they're re, they're reliving whatever era of wrestling that they really enjoy, and they want to see because they don't get to see the legends that often. They want to see the legends get get the the upper hand. But then you've got to do business. You know, the following day, and the legends are on a plane. They're on their way home. You may not see them again for four, five, six months, right? And in the meantime, you've got your, you know, day-to-day talent. I don't mean to be disparaging when I say day-to-day, but you've got your regular roster in the ring with these legends, and they have to do business. So you've got to be careful that you don't dilute the the equity in your your, your main roster and, and sacrifice it to get, you know, a legend over who's really not going to be around after right. the show's over. So it's, it's a challenge. And I think the other part of it is, and I think it's even more true now 
uh, in, in 2020 is these guys, whether it's Hulk Hogan or Shawn Michaels or Ric Flair, they can't take bumps. You know, and I know for a fact with respect to Hulk Hogan in 2015, this guy was just not capable of doing all that much. He wanted to in his mind. He was still, you know. 38, 40 years old and was able to do all the stuff that he used to be able to do in his mind, but the body was not cooperating. And he was well aware of that by this point. He had a lot of serious back issues. He had already been through a number of surgeries. So with regard to Hulk, no matter how bad he wanted to do something, he was physically really not capable of doing it to the, to the, to the level or to, to, to the extent that he should put it that way. And the same thing is true. Not, wasn't probably in 2015, obviously with Rick certainly is today. And I, you know, you, when you see legends, you know, in WWE today, there's only a small handful of them that are capable of going out there and having any physical contact. So it is it, it is tough. And it's it's particularly tough because you look at, you know, Ric Flair, Shawn uh, Michaels and Hulk Hogan, all three of those guys want, especially when they get out there in front of the crowd. And again, you're looking at if you're not watching along with us, just about everybody in this arena is on their feet right now listening to this promo. They want to see the action, but, you know, the talent knows better. And, and for reasons that we discussed a few moments ago about, you know, not diluting the equity and just the reality of, you know, what they can and can't do, they're not able to do it. And now as we see Ric Flair, he takes off his sport coat. He's taking off the Rolex. He's doing his Ric Flair gimmick, stomping around the ring, laying a chop on Paul White, rights, left, center of the ring. Ric Flair having a blast, comes off the ropes and gets blasted. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And Hulk Hogan and Shawn Michaels come over to mop up what's left of Ric Flair. Not probably what, not probably what Rick wanted to do. No, Rick didn't care. He didn't care? No. Hey, like, what are they looking at? Well, they're looking at, you know, as they look to the uh, top of the ramp here, they know there he is, Roman Reigns, coming down from the crowd, which was very much his signature in this era. And, uh, of course, that's how the Shield used to always enter the scene. And Roman Reigns getting primed for that top spot. He's here to save these legends. Uh, from this dastardly big show. So John Cena here visiting with, uh, Mrs. Moxley, Renee young. And we, we took to the app to do a poll. Should John Cena risk his championship opportunity at the Royal rumble for a chance to save the jobs of Eric Rowan and Dolph Ziggler and Ryback and 85% of the fans say, yes, I got to tell you as cheesy and corny as that may sound. I really do like the idea of trying to engage the audience with, Hey, go here now and vote on this. Uh, and it was a rather clever way to get everybody to download the app and condition them uh, to use that app because that's the new way of the world with the network. And they had to come up with lots of ideas and concepts like that. But anytime you can get the fans to engage with you on that level, uh, your brand is winning. Am I right? Absolutely. Any, any level of engagement, you know, it's, you're, you're making the audience or you're allowing the audience, I should say, to feel like they're participating in the show and they've got a voice and, 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 and some in, input into what they're going to see. And that's a very powerful way to market your product. We, uh, we would love to interact with you. If you haven't already follow us on Twitter at 83 weeks, uh, we are, uh, very active on Twitter. It's probably our, our go-to social media app. We'd love to have your follow there and you'll have an opportunity to interact and 
vote on polls that we put up when we get a chance to do it that way. And of course, we're usually asking for your feedback and asking if you have questions about a particular topic. And we got lots of questions this week about Sting debuting on Raw, which we're going to get to here as we see the now John Moxley, the former Dean Ambrose, making his way to the ring. He's going to be taking on a guy who's recently popped back up, Wade Barrett. Uh, the real life Stu Bennett, who's now doing some commentary for the NWA on their studio show. Have you, uh, have you seen any of the NWA power episodes that they've you know started to do this year with the old school studio look? I have, uh, David Lagana has sent me, uh, quite a few links to some of the episodes that they've done. I haven't sat down and watched it on YouTube, but I have watched uh, a lot of the stuff that David sends to me and it you know, uh, Nick Aldis is one of my favorite characters, uh, and people He's a super guy, just a super guy, classy, very talented. He's a student uh, of the industry and not just in the ring, but outside of the ring very interested in the business of the sports entertainment business or wrestling business, whatever you want to call it. So I'm, I'm a big fan of Nick's and therefore a, a big fan of, of the NWA. I like what they're doing. You know, it's unique. They're embracing the studio show for, for <laughs> easy for me to say they're embracing the studio show format and kind of embracing the nostalgia of that era, you know, back when most wrestling was in small television studios, rather than what most people do, myself included. You know, we did it in WCW. TNA did it. You know, you're stuck in a soundstage. Um, you try to make it look bigger than it really is. You try to camouflage the fact that you've only got four, five, six hundred people in the audience, whatever it is, and and make it look like it's bigger. And and the NWA is embracing that studio show format and kind of paying homage to, you know, the the history and the legacy legacy of the industry before it became this big spectacle. Now, granted, they're doing it because they have no choice. They have to. But I really respect the fact that they're not trying to camouflage it and rather embrace it. So I'm a big fan of what they're doing and, and hope for their success. Let's go to Twitter as we're watching uh, Stu Bennett here. Sorry, Wade Barrett uh, and uh, Dean Ambrose try to tear it up here on Monday Night Raw. We're talking, of course, about the debut of Sting on Monday Night Raw. Um, Kirk... Or sorry, Chris Gibson writes, Eric, what would have been your reaction if this would have happened in 1998? Of course, we're talking about sting jumping ship. He was definitely the face of WCW, the franchise of WCW. And, and really that's the reason we're reviewing this show because he was one of the lone holdouts. It didn't feel like it was ever going to happen when everybody had worked everywhere. Sting did not. He was a WCW loyalist. What if he would have jumped ship in 1998, fresh off of the incredible push and storyline that we had in, uh, through all of 1997 and even part of 96? Hypothetically, if his contract had come up in 98 and he switched jerseys, how disastrous would that have been, do you think? Wow. Um, it's hard to hard to imagine it. <laughs> you know, I, I understand it's a hypothetical question and I get it. And, and I, I just can't imagine what that, it would have been devastating. Let's, let's first deal with that. You know, there was so much, uh, so much 
emphasis on Sting. He was really the face of the company, regardless of, you know, the NWO and all the success that, you know, Nitro had and, and all of that. The fan base, I think, recognized Sting as, you know, other than Ric Flair, probably, you know, was the WCW. And to, and to lose somebody like that would have been devastating. You know, setting the storylines that were in place and everything that we had hoped to be doing with Sting in that hypothetical question, let's say in August or September of 1998, if Sting would have said, sorry, guys, you know, got a better deal from WWE heading that way, it would have been hugely, it would have been demoralizing, I think, not only from a creative perspective, but I think, you know, within the offices, you know, Sting was a guy, Steve, Steve Borden, the man, Sting, the character, was someone that got along with everybody, you know, and it wasn't superficial. It wasn't, he wasn't just, you know, polite to people. He was obviously, but it was genuine with Steve. I don't think there was one person within WCW, either in the locker room or in the office that had one negative thing to say about Steve Borden. And I, and I think most people would have been devastated had he gone to WWE. Great question. I'm not a big fan of hypotheticals, but that was a good one. Lots of, uh, questions, you know, over the years about the undertaker and sort of comparing him to sting a goddamn candy man on Twitter says when someone from WCW would come to the WWE, they would go out of their way to meet the undertaker. Was it the same for sting when it was the other way around? Did the WWE guys you signed in the nineties go out of their way to meet sting? Uh, I, I, I don't think so. I, I, I don't recall that being something that was obvious. I'm sure that they did, but keep in mind, even a lot of the WWE guys that would, would come over, you know, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, uh, for example, new sting when they were in WCW. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a situation where, you know, they were meeting someone for the very first time, or they didn't already have a good relationship with, with Steve because they did. Uh, so I, I think because of the familiar familiarity and because they all knew each other had, and had known each other for quite a long time, I can't think of anybody that came over from, from WWE to WCW that didn't already have a relationship with Steve. So we saw Dean Ambrose pick up the big win here. He beat the intercontinental champ, but it was a non-title match, but Dean Ambrose is your winner gets the win with the dirty deeds, double arm DDT. Uh, I'm curious, your your take on Dean Ambrose and, and slash John Moxley. Do you perceive him to be a, a quote unquote top guy with AEW? God, you put me on a spot. Um, not yet. That's, I mean, I, I gotta be honest. Um, I like his character. I like his work. I, 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 I like the fact that he's kind of this enigma in, in, in a, in a way, um, there's a lot of things I like about it, but top guy, uh, if I'm being honest, no, I, I don't. Why, what do you think he's missing to be a top guy for you? And obviously, you know, top guy is very subjective, you know, it's just either it's to your taste or it's not. What do you, what do you think he could do differently? What do you think he's missing range? He's to me, he's two dimensional. And he needs to find that third dimension, you know, to get him to a Chris Jericho type level. Um, It's nothing wrong with his work, nothing at all wrong with his character, other than I'm not seeing a lot of depth to it. It's there's a sameness to it. There's not enough range to it. 
Um, I, I'd like to see that. And, and, and I think that that's true across the boards for a lot of characters, not just, you know, John Moxley, um, you know, to be able to shift gears. And again, I'm not putting Chris Jericho over, um, because I'm going on a cruise with him in four days. Um, I'm, or I'm on, as you listen to this, I am on the cruise with, with Chris. So it's not why I'm saying this, but you know, you go back and look at Chris Jericho's career and he's been able to successfully reinvent himself so many different times in so many different ways because he has that, that, that range and that third dimension that a lot of people have really never developed. And a lot of top guys don't have it. You know, guys that you consider top guys don't have it. But and I think if, if any talent, not just John Moxley, but Dean Ambrose, whatever you want to call him, not just John Moxley, but any talent wants to reach that next level, they've got to be able to have that range that allows them to position elements of their character, character that make them feel more interesting from time to time. And as long as you're in that two-dimensional range, it's really hard to do. We uh, we're seeing lots of different clips here uh, from the Royal Rumble, and they're sort of running through the stats. Um, as we see, they're running through the numbers here uh, for the Royal Rumble. I've always felt like WCW was missing a Royal Rumble type pay per view, and I know you guys did World War Three, but for whatever reason, I don't think it connected with the audience the way Royal Rumble did. The Battle Royal goes back you know, to the very beginning of wrestling, it feels like it's been around for decades. Uh, but there is a, a slight tweak from Pat Patterson where instead of having all the guys start in the ring, we bring a different one out. It builds this anticipation. And, and here is we're in Royal rumble season right now with WWE presenting their pay-per-view this weekend, as usual, everyone starts to sort of back into, oh, 26 guys have been announced. Who were the last four? They want to be surprised. They want the big surprise entrant. Is someone new going to debut? Is an old character going to come back? Who's going to win it all? This air of predictability or unpredictability is, I think, what has been the key to the longevity and the success that Royal Rumble has had. What say you? Man, you hit it right on the head. Um, first of all, did you buy your Lamborghini? With, oh, with the do not have a Lamborghini. No, you, I, I thought I Conrad, come on. I bought a, I bought a baby mama, Alexis. But you don't have a Lamborghini. No, I'm too fat for Lamborghini. Hey, that's a shirt. That <laughs> oh, is that's a why, shirt. that's why you got the Rolls Royce hashtag too fat for Lamborghini. <laughs> I, dude, we got to get that as a shirt. That would be, that'd be a huge hit. Too fat for Lamborghini. No, but you know what? You hit it right on the head. One word, one word. And you summarize really the entire industry and what, what makes it work anticipation. Yeah. And look, as she, and this is, you know, my, my take on the psychology of what makes sports entertainment so successful when it's successful is capitalizing on that one emotion anticipation, because we're, we're conditioned as, as human beings in this country, you know, you look forward to Christmas, or you look forward to Hanukkah, or you look forward to Easter, or you look forward to Halloween, or you look forward to these holidays that all have tradition associated with them that make them 
exciting and make them fun and make them something you look forward to every year. So at a very, very early age, you're conditioned a couple times a year to look forward to certain holidays, right? You look forward to your birthday because you're getting birthday presents or you're getting older, which gives you an opportunity to, you know, do more things. You get your first bike. When you're in your teens, you're looking forward to get your driver's license so you can have that freedom and you can drive a car and, and you're looking forward to relationships and looking forward to getting laid and you're looking forward to going to college and, you know, your first job. So you have your own money. You're, you're conditioned to look forward to things your entire life. And I think when wrestling works, anticipation is one of the key elements that makes it work. And I think your, your point to the Royal Rumble and the anticipation of who's it going to be is absolutely right on the money. Look at the success of the NWO. Yes, it was the chemistry. It was the talent involved. It was the storyline and all the, the believability. It was all those things. That, you know, We've talked about it ad, ad nauseum here on the show. But I think the key element that really launched the NWO and made it work, the underlying element was the anticipation of who's the third man. And not no brag, just fact, the phenomenal way that we were able to keep that secret and deliver on that promise and expectation of, of revealing that third man. When you can when you can capitalize that anticipation and build that anticipation so that people are talking about it, they're excited about it, they're vocal about it, and then deliver and or over deliver, hopefully over deliver uh, on the element of anticipation that satisfies the audience, that's when you knock it the fuck out of the park. And I, you know, I, I use the acronym SARSA, story, anticipation, reality, surprise, and action. All of those elements are, are really, really critical, in my opinion, of, for developing a great storyline within the industry. But of all of those elements, I think anticipation is the foundation that everything else is built upon. Good point on your, on your behalf there, Mr. Thompson. We're seeing an interesting match here between a very young New Day. I think they're roughly a year into this act. Uh, so they're not quite, uh, to the heights that they're going to be just a year later. Um, but they're taking on Tyson kid and Cesaro. And I absolutely, I absolutely love, uh, that tag team. And it's a shame that we didn't get to see more of it. Of course, we know Tyson kids in ring career will be cut short. He still works behind the scenes with WWE. And I believe he listens to this podcast. Uh, hey Tyson, how the hell are you, buddy? He looks like a, uh. One weight class lower Ken Shamrock in his gear and presentation here, but the work does not look like that. I think he's, uh, I don't know, man. I, I can't recommend going back and watching enough of their tag team stuff. I've been a big fan of Cesaro since he was on the Indies. It's Claudio Castagnoli, and I think he would have enjoyed that gimmick. And speaking of gimmicks, there was a gimmick and a half with Tyson Kidd uh, and uh, Cesaro here. And Adam Rose, he's got all of his his party animals with him as they're going through. And you see on the left, that's Sammy Guevara, who's now with AEW. And, uh, once upon a time, uh, Becky Lynch was a part of that group. And another time we saw Braun Strowman as a part of that group. There's it's fascinating to see who all, you know, played these rosebud characters, but Sammy Guevara is a little nugget that I don't think a lot of people who watch AEW today would expect to see here, but there he was. I want to give a shout out to Cesaro too. There's, you know, I was only uh, back with WWE for 
four months, so I didn't spend a lot of time there. I didn't really get a chance to get to know a lot of people that I didn't previously know. But Cesaro is uh, one of those guys I wish I would have had an opportunity to spend more time with, both professionally and, and even just to get to know as a human being. Very, very positive guy. I don't think I ever you know, laid eyes on Cesaro when he didn't have a smile on his face. He wasn't really outgoing and happy to be where he was and loved that kind of energy. You know, really think a lot of Cesaro as a human being and as a professional. He's a great guy. We got three great guys coming up. It's the NWO reunion with uh, Hall and Nash and Sean Waltman. And of course we know they're all going into the Hall of Fame this year. And well, you'll be watching on TV. What the fuck? Uh, yeah, I probably will be watching on television. I've said this before, and, and nothing's changed. I think for me personally, uh, you know, the Hall of Fame is the aspect of WrestleMania that I look forward to the most. I, I, the emotions are real. These guys are getting up there, and you know, of course, you know, a couple of them have been there a, a few times now, a couple times. So it's maybe a little different for them. But a lot of the people that you're seeing inducted are, you know, it's a really special moment for them, and. You know, it, it means a lot to them and the emotion is real. And I think that's what makes it really fun for me is just watching that that real emotion. And what makes this really fun for me is, you know, WWE is is, you know, famous for shitting all over anything that wasn't WWE. And to see the fact that, you know, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, Sean Waltman. Not only here, as we're watching along on this particular episode, they're not bringing them back as Diesel and Razor in the one, two, three kid, they're out here flying the flag of the NWO. And I think even seeing them go into the hall of fame, you know, as the NWO, you know, it makes me feel really good. When I see these guys, you know, we do a lot of autograph signings together and conventions together. And we see each other out on the road several times during the year, even Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, when they're making personal appearances, they're not making personal appearances as diesel and razor Ramon. They're, they're wearing their NWO gear. And I, I think, you know, it's one of the things that I'm, very, I won't say most proud of, but very proud of is the fact that, you know, I think we took Sean Waltman, Scott Hall, and Kevin Nash from WWE and made them bigger stars than they were in WWE. And I think that's evidenced by the fact that they're still out there today as those NWO characters. And I'm, I'm proud of that and proud for them because they did it. I gave them the opportunity, but they delivered. Yes, they did. And, uh, Kevin Nash here looks like a million bucks, but if you follow him on social media, you saw where he recently posted uh, a picture sort of before and after he had had uh, a knee replacement and got his hips to realign and did a lot of stem cell stuff down in Columbia. And, uh, you could even tell as he was walking down to the ring that you know, his, he's, he's not moving around super slyly here in 2015, but he is now. And the before and after. Uh, of just his stance is, is really unbelievable. And, you know, look in the mirror, you look good. You're doing everything right for your health today. And as we're looking in the ring, Conrad, I, I, we're looking at the NWO, you know, which is the, the, the whole foundation of the NWO was based in reality. It was the premise of the storyline and they're in the ring with the Ascension, which is about as far from reality-based characters as one could get. I'm not sure that this makes much sense to me, but whatever. I wasn't following it at the time, so maybe they were more over than I give them credit for being, but to me, this is like a square peg in a round hole here. 
No, they're, listen, they're, they're brought out to be humiliated and embarrassed and, and the Ascension right or wrong, never got a fair shake on the main roster. Uh, they did great work down in NXT and it felt like they had high hopes for them here, but after a week or two, all that was out the window and well, some of that might have to do with this freaking gimmick. Yeah. This is ridiculous. Well, they look like a, uh, a poor man's road warriors, you know, and very poor. That's that's, that, I think that's being, that's being very unkind to poor people. You know how, uh, oh my God, I love you for that. <laughs> you, you've probably, you've always been a multi, multi, multi-millionaire. So maybe your kids never did it, but. Growing up as a poor Alabamian, you know, we couldn't always get the name brand stuff. So sometimes, you know, instead of going to, uh, you know, Walmart or target or something like that, we would go to like a discount store, like a, like a family dollar or a dollar general. And those toys that they sell in stores like that are essentially knockoffs of the more name brand toys that you'd see in the bigger box retailers. So you would have like wrestling action figures that were just like. Okay. It sort of looks like that guy, but it's just off a little bit. So they would sell like fake Ray Mysterios and things like that. Well, I feel like that's what this is. The Ascension or maybe like uh, fake road warriors. And, and here you see JBL getting up from his position and what a reaction it gets from the crowd here. Because he's here. Because to... they didn't expect it. That's exactly right. Because it's unusual. And now it's, and now what what John is doing here is building anticipation. They want to see John get in the ring and knock somebody out or get knocked out, but they want to see that confrontation. I love what he says. I had a feeling this might happen. So I made a little phone call to a legend I know. And of course he's about to bring out Ron Simmons and they did not expect this for him to stand up from the announce desk and reveal the APA shirt. And here comes Ron Simmons, man, this is awesome stuff. It is awesome. And Ron is an awesome guy. I love, again, another guy that I see probably three or four times a year out on the circuit and just always fun hanging out with Ron. Always, always in a great mood. Great guy. Amazing talent. A real legend in the industry. Funny as hell, too. (laughs) I love listening to him tell stories. By the way, we've talked a lot about JBL, uh, the real life. Uh, John Layfield with Bruce Pritchard, but we haven't spent a lot of time talking here. Do you think he's one of the most misunderstood guys in wrestling? You know, I, I don't know how to answer that because I, you know, I know John fairly well. I've, I've met him when I, you know, right away when I first got to WWE, we got along really, actually I, I had met John in an airport, uh, in Tokyo. Uh, he was coming in to, to Japan, I think. And I was just leaving and we, you know, we bumped into each other and I think we had sushi and a beer together and, you know, next thing I knew, the, you know, everybody was talking about how I was trying to steal John Layfield from WWE, which wasn't a, a, at all the case. But I always got along really well with John and still do to this day. To me, he's a fun guy. I've, I've, you know, I've, I, I don't know how anybody doesn't get along with John, but whatever. I, evidently, he's he's got a little bit of a reputation and somewhat controversial in the minds of wrestling fans. But I don't know. I've I've never I've never been around John and had anything but a great time and seen him, you know, treat people pretty respectfully. So I, I don't know what, I don't know what, I don't know what there is for people to misunderstand, or maybe it's just me. I don't know. I dig it. Perhaps there's a, there's a locker room, John, and then a real life, John, I've only met real life, John, and, uh, he's always been very funny and witty and he loves busting Bruce Pritchard's balls as much as I do. So, 
Oh, wait. What's it not to love? <laughs> I know. Gotta we've love always, them, right? We've always got along great. It's just, it's fun because you hear certain things about certain people, and that's what you're sort of led to believe. And then you meet them and realize, well, that's not what I was expecting at all. And nobody was expecting the New Age Outlaws to come out here. So when Road Dog hit the old, oh, you didn't know, the crowd went wild. It's kind of weird action that we're seeing in the ring right now. I'm not, not really <laughs> badass Billy Gunn. I'm going to tell you a story. I did an independent show about two years ago in Detroit. And Billy Gunn was actually in a match with my son, Garrett. And there was a spot, and I was outside of the ring, and there was a spot in the match where I, Billy was going to hit the ropes, and I needed to reach down underneath the bottom rope and grab his, his, uh, his leg and trip him up so I could give Garrett an advantage. And when he hit the ropes, as you know, guys often do, they throw their hips into the ro- in between the rope to kind of launch themselves off of it. I wasn't paying close attention, being the inexperienced old fuck that I am. And I leaned in between the ropes a little farther than I should have, and I got hit in the head with his ass. <laughs> and I, I, honest to God, he, I think for a second and a half, I was out on my feet. I mean, it, I just saw a big flash of light, and I, that motherfucker has the hardest ass I've ever been hit with. Not that I've been hit with a lot, but I don't ever want to get hit with Billy Gunn's ass again because it damn near killed me. I, I didn't know that we were going to learn so much about Mr. Ass's ass today, but I'm glad we did. It's a deadly fucking weapon, let me tell you. So there you see uh, quite the segment. I really enjoyed that segment. I think that's the proper way to use Legends. It's unfortunate that it's at the expense of... Uh, of a tag team, but that's on the main roster. But I guess it, 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 that's sort of the structure you have to go with here. And the Ascension drew the unlucky straw these days. Of course, they've been released from their WWE contracts. They're going to uh, get back out on the free market and see what's what, uh, obviously they won't be the Ascension gimmick. I'm curious to see. Thank God. They, yeah. They should be, they should be grateful for that. That was one of the worst gimmicks I've ever seen, you know, in this era. I mean, it would have been fine back in, you know, the 1960s, but this was, this was horrible. Well, I'm excited to see what they do because, you know, as a tag team, uh, we saw that they could have really good matches when given the opportunity and, uh, Victor, uh, the, the smaller of the two, uh, he's only 39, which is the prime age for a professional wrestler. Wouldn't you agree? I think so. You know, by the time if you've been in the business for 10, 15 years, you're finally reaching that point where I think you really understand the business and you understand your character. And physically, you know, your mid-30s, you're probably as strong or stronger than you've ever been in your life and still durable. So, yeah, I agree. I think his his tag partner, I think he's he's 39 as well. He might be 40 this year, but either way. Just a kid. Just a kid. Still, yeah, I mean that's not the age it used to be uh, a decade ago or a generation ago. People would talk about that as if it was old, but I mean, guys are really hitting their stride, you know, in their late thirties and early forties. I mean, this past year, most people think that Chris Jericho had, you know, sort of the, 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 the best year of any wrestler this past year, when it came to promos and matches and things like that, 49 years old when he did all of that. No, I mean, let's, we'll talk about that for just a second because we have mentioned this before, but you know, there, there is a perfect example now, you know, I think even Chris, I don't know this, but I, I, I would imagine if you sat down with some of Chris's, uh, matches from back in the mid late nineties and WCW, 
you know, I, I think physically he was probably at his prime in terms of what he was able to do in the ring for sure uh in in the late 90s and the early part of 2000 but as a character i think he's evolved tremendously uh since that time and i think that's a big part of the key and if you're out there listening to this and you're a young person you know thinking about getting in the industry or for if you're already in the industry and you're in in that independent world or maybe getting a break with AEW or NXT or even WWE think about your character and think about advancing your character and your ability to cut promos and your ability to use your own creativity so you can embrace if, if they hand you a character if they they meaning if it's WWE or AEW or anybody else if you're coming into an organization and you have a character that's being created for you you're ability to interpret that character and make it your own is just as important not more important but just as important as the things you're capable of doing in the ring and i think chris jericho is a perfect example of a guy who you know he may not be at the top of his game physically as he was maybe 10 years ago but i think he's far exceeded you know his, his game compared to that same period of time when it comes to his character and his, and his ability to understand and apply psychology to it we see here on the show here, we've got a, uh, a women's match. Uh, we've got, uh, Natalia and Paige on one side here and given the big double suplex to summer Ray, it's pretty crazy to think that only one of these ladies still wrestling. Of course, a uh, page forced to retire due to an injury and summer Ray just pursuing things outside of wrestling right now. It's also crazy to think about, you know, how much wrestling or women's wrestling inside WWE has changed in five years. Of course, summer race tag team partner here, Alicia Fox. She's on the outside looking for the tag. We should, uh, mention, we've got some more questions here on, um, on, on Twitter, all about sting making his debut. And a lot of the questions were about the WrestleMania match. Of course, we know that. The creative is going to be that Sting is here and he's going to take on Triple H. Uh, and as part of that WrestleMania match that we would see just a few months after this, it would essentially become the NWO with Sting, which doesn't make any sense, uh, and DX. What did you think of the WrestleMania match? Did you think it was overbooked? Were you surprised that Triple H won and not Sting? What did you think of the handshake just moments after they broke a, a sledgehammer over his fucking head? Uh, I, I wasn't, I wasn't impressed with it. I wasn't impressed with any of it at all. To it be honest with terrible. you, I was, I, I was disappointed. Sting deserved better. It was a major fumble. I, uh, I, I happened to be watching that show on a monitor and, uh, a very prominent WWE talent was seated on an equipment box. Uh, very curious uh, as to what the finish of that match was going to be. And when triple H got the win, uh, this person jumped off the box and stormed off. You gotta be fucking kidding me. Cause like half of this roster grew up a big sting fan and stings finally at WrestleMania. And well, it's all about the game. Yeah. But how could, how can anybody that has spent more than five minutes working with WWE be surprised that that was the finish? Yeah. I mean, really, come on, let's be honest. You could be hopeful that it would be different, but you've got, you know, to be surprised and maybe the person, I don't know who it was. I don't need to know who it was. Maybe that person wasn't surprised. It was just angry, but 
you know, anybody that thought for a half of second that Sting was going to come in and defeat Triple H was smoking crack. It, it really is disappointing that, that this is going to be the payoff. And I think a lot of fans were, were hopeful they would see Sting versus The Undertaker. I don't know that that would have been a great match. I, I know on paper, you know, everybody wants everybody to be at their prime, but in 2015 or 2020, I don't think Sting versus Undertaker would be maybe what it could have been in, say, a 1997. Um, and that's really when that, that sort of fantasy booking started to happen. When we had that black and white crow version of Sting, you started to see on mag- after magazines like PWI, the fantasy booking. But I, someone did suggest something that I thought, well, now that actually might work. Instead of Sting and Undertaker against each other, maybe they should form a tag team and take on a couple of younger guys and the combination of, you know, some, some, uh, more full-time in-ring performers working with the elder statesman Sting and Undertaker that might be passable, but still probably not exactly what some fans are looking for. No, but there's a lot to work with there. Yeah. You know? I mean, you could have put those two, you know, you could have put Undertaker and Sting together uh, reluctantly. You could have, you could have put them together, but with an underlying tension between the two of them or just enough doubt, you know, b- between the two of them to not be totally sure that they were going to work together uh, well in the ring or not, you know, escalate something at the end of a match where you would have a conference. And there was a, be a lot to work with there by taking those two up. And I think you're right. You know, it, it, the the fantasy booking aspect of it, it's always nice to think, yeah, what if you would have had Sting, you know, from 1997, 1998, when he was arguably still at his physical prime in there with The Undertaker, same situation. Would that be great? Absolutely it would be great. But putting that together in 2015 or in 2000 or 2020, uh, people would be very, very disappointed. And the talent themselves would be disappointed because they know that they're not able to deliver the expectation on th- that the audience has. They're just not physically capable of doing it. And that's just a reality. But I think putting those two together would have been a really, really interesting story to tell and would have still had all of the uh, potential of, of creating interest and building anticipation because of the, the inherent you know, desire of, of the audience to see those two kind of go at each other just one time, even if it's for a short period of time. Could have been fun. R-Truth, here's another guy. Love, love, love being around this guy. Man, you could, you got to see this from this past week. I know you didn't see it, but you got to find a clip. You know what? I retweeted it. Just scroll through my tweets and you'll see a video from this past Monday. Uh, where he was declaring himself, he's the 24 seven champ now. And he was right. declaring himself, uh, eligible for the Royal rumble. And, uh, then he started cutting a promo about how he was going to whoop your ass and you had no chance. And he was going to tear you limb from limb, Paul Heyman. And then of course, <laughs> Heyman says, wait a minute, bong hit. I'm not in the match. Brock Lesnar is. And so Ron says, hang on, you're not in it. He's in it. And of course, Heyman says, yeah, stupid or something like that. And then Ryan says, I'd like to officially undeclare myself from the Royal rumble. It was tremendous. One of the highlight segments. And I think he's maybe one of the more underutilized talents, 48 years old. Again, still looks tremendous. You would never guess he's 48. Um, and, 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 and still able to perform at a high level where the in rings stuff is still there. 
but his character development to your point about Jericho off the charts, off the charts. And I'll tell you what, in this, you know, be careful how I say this, uh, but if, you know, Lori and I, Mrs. B and I get back to Cody, Wyoming and WWE happens to come to Billings, Montana. If our truth is on the card, I'm buying a ticket. I'm not even going to call Mark Carano and ask him for a free one. I'm going to buy one. The guy is so entertaining, you know, in and out of the ring. He's just such a talented guy. And a super and he's another one of those people like Cesaro. You know, you could you could walk into the arena, you know, if you're working at WWE, I'll use it myself. You could walk in and, you know, be tired, be in a foul mood, you know, whatever. You spend about 30 seconds around our truth and you're cracking up and you realize, you know, life's pretty damn good. He's just one of those people that, you know, make you feel good about being around. He's super guy, super guy and a great talent. It was so remarkable right there to see Rusev here. Rusev is getting in the middle of a big push here. He's the U S champ. He's still paired with Lana. Uh, they're still dropping the big flag from the top. He's wearing the medal. There's a flag at ringside. We're just a couple of months away from him riding a goddamn tank into WrestleMania to wrestle John Cena, just really remarkable. And then you see what they're doing with him today. And you just wonder how what did happened? we get here? <laughs> how did we get here? Cause by the way, physically Rusev looks better than ever. Uh, his, his work is still tremendous, but they're in the middle of this Bobby Lashley, Lana storyline. And you know, this guy was riding tanks to WrestleMania to take on John Cena. I, I just missed this old presentation. The very, very much, a Ivan Drago, Rocky four presentation. As we see backstage here, Brock Lesnar consult, uh, confronting Seth Rollins, both are heels, uh, but they're going at it. And of course, Seth is flanked by J and J security. Of course, Joey Mercury has been a rather controversial figure in this last year or so. He's no longer with WWE and spent some time with ring of honor and all of that got blown up in short order. And, uh, now Seth is seconded with, uh, AOP and now buddy Murphy. And Hey, here's a couple of guys who've been around for a long time. It's your tag champs, the Usos. And, uh, they're recently uh, announcing that they're coming back after a little bit of time off. And of course, we're just a couple of days away from them taking on Mizdow. So Damian Sandow and the Miz, did you ever get a chance to see this, uh, this stunt double version of Damian Sandow with the Miz? No, I didn't. But before we go on, what was the, uh, what's the controversy surrounding Joey Mercury? Oh my God. It would be a, a, an episode and a half, but the, uh, the gist is he, he worked closely with ring of honor management. And, uh, when they had a falling out, he started sharing screenshots and behind the scenes information of some of the decisions that they were making that he knew would be unpopular with fans, including, uh, things like, uh, medical care for the athletes and. Uh, just things that shouldn't be pay scale for their champions and, uh, just embarrassing facts. And it took a weird turn and the women's champion was involved and she's no longer with ring of honor. And there was infidelity involved and it's just, it's a soap opera, dirty, dirty stuff, but the, well, the, the, we should do an episode on it sometime. Well, a bonus, a bonus episode. He would love to, by the way, I don't know if you were paying attention there, but as the Uso, I think it's Jay, rolled up Miz, 
Sandow took the identical bump on the outside and literally everything that Miz is doing inside the ring. Sandow is mimicking on the outside of the ring. That's entertaining. It is. That's, tremendous. that's really cool. So the concept is Miz is a big movie star. He's a, he's a huge star. So he needs a stunt double and that's what Damien Sandow's doing. And they're calling. See, I love this. This is creative. This is a new tour. No, this is kind of cool. I like that's a fresh idea. Has that ever been done before? No. And it got over huge to the point that even when they were tagging, the fans would boo Miz, but the minute Sandow got in, they'd go bananas. That's awesome. That's awesome. He, he, these days is, uh, a big part of what they're doing with the NWA. So if you enjoy his work, be sure to check him out on power on YouTube. All right. Three, two, one play. So what do you think this, uh, stunt double thing, you know, in wrestling, you and I often say there's nothing original. We've all seen something. We've all seen it before. Everything's rehash. This is not, this is so awesome. I absolutely love this idea. This is one of the things about this industry that makes it kind of fun is every once in a while you see something that hasn't been done before that is really unique and creative. And this is a great idea. I mean, it is a great idea. Very excited about this. By the way, the show we're watching, uh, we just saw Jey Uso pin the Miz. And then we got the backstage perspective uh, from the immortal Hulk Hogan. What are Cena's chances? He thinks Cena's going to win tonight and win the Royal Rumble. Of course, Michael Cole says if he can beat Seth Rollins tonight, it'll be one of the biggest upsets in raw history. And we see the authority seated ringside and inside it's J and J security with corporate Kane, the big show and Seth Rollins, man, the odds are stacked against our hero. And here he comes. We're going to get a hero's welcome for John Cena. It's weird because I think, uh, this may have even flown under your radar. John Cena has for the first time in his entire wrestling career gone a full calendar year without wrestling a match. It's the end of an era. I wonder what he's going to, you know, look, I I don't know John Cena real well, but I know him well enough to know that he's much like the rock and so many of the other guys that have reached such a high level of success in the industry. You can't get the rush that you can get inside of a wrestling ring with an arena full of 10, 15, 20, 40, 60, 80, hundred thousand fans like you can, uh, in this industry. And I'm sure we're going to see John again, but here's, here's the complication. I think one of them at least is the more successful John becomes in the feature film industry, which he's, as we talked about earlier in the show, he's really starting to make some really positive moves in that regard. Um, the harder it is for him to compete because when you're signed on to do a movie, once you, you, you as they say in the industry, you become officially attached to a project. Um, the filmmakers have to take out insurance on on every aspect of producing that film, including the talent. And some of those insurance policies prohibit uh, talent from taking part in certain activities, much like professional sports. You know, in the NFL, if you're an NFL player, there's a whole list of things that you can't do when you're under contract. Riding motorcycles, for example, is one of them. Or jumping out of airplanes or, you know, probably water skiing, any kind of high-risk activity because the the team has so much money invested in you. And in John's case, 
the producers of a film or a studio have so much money invested in that project and the talent that's attached to it. So the more successful John becomes in the feature film industry, I think the less likely it's going to be that we're going to see him in the ring. But, you know, I think he's not quite there yet, I don't think, but he's well on his way. And I, I know John would love to get back in the ring and, and get that reaction from that audience because there's nothing like it. It's just addicting. And here we see John Cena in the ring with Big Show taking some of the world's biggest chops. Just whenever he's ready, he'll tag out and tag in corporate Kane and Seth Rollins. It's, uh, yeah, pretty lopsided here. Three on one. The Dak is stacked against our hero. The Dak, the deck is stacked. By the way, uh, Zlade, we got a lot of comments like this. Eric, how terrible did you think it was that kept referring to Sting as the vigilante Sting? I don't know that that was on your radar, but that is something they drilled really, really heavily. They weren't calling him the man called Sting. They weren't calling him the legend Sting. They weren't calling him the icon Sting. Uh, they were calling him the vigilante Sting. That's what they were really, really drilling. And a lot of old WCW fans felt like, Man, just let him be fucking Sting. Why do we have to put a WWE spin on everything? What do you think of the nickname, the Vigilante Sting? Stupid. What does it mean? What does it represent? Where did it come from? I mean, look, there's a lot of silliness in in professional wrestling and sports entertainment. There's a lot of things that go on that makes absolutely no sense. So much so that sometimes you just kind of go with it. But, you know, when you got somebody like Sting who had such a long and high profile career. Why would you tag him with something that made absolutely no sense and has no application to who the character was or who he is at that particular time? Makes no sense to me. Dumb. Francis. Now let me, let me rephrase that fucking dumb. Hmm. How's that? Francis wants to know, how would you have brought staying into the WWE? I would have brought him in as himself. I would, uh, you know, the, when I say himself, his most recent character, the crow kind of character, Sting, I would have certainly brought him in as that. That's what most wrestling fans probably, you know, in 2015 recognized him as because WCW and, and Nitro and the Sting character was so much more popular, you know, in the late 90s uh, than he was in the early 90s. So I, I would have brought him in as that crow character. Uh, lots of questions similar to this one. Uh, Jim writes, do you think that Vince goes out of his way to destroy anything you created like the NWO and WWE sting Goldberg, ultimately anything WCW gets killed off by Vince in the end? Mm, no, I don't think that. I, I think that's kind of silly. I, I understand why people might think that. But I, I don't think that's the case. I, look, I, I honestly believe Vince will take advantage of, exploit, use anything that he possibly can to make his business healthier and, and generate revenue, uh, including anything that was WCW. But I also do believe that there's a certain, oh, gosh, I don't know, I'll call it a culture, um, a corporate culture whereby WWE, the brand, and all of the things that are created as original intellectual property will always uh, be positioned uh, as a priority 
And, and I'm not so sure that that's not a great idea. Obviously, look at their business model. It's working for them. It's unfortunate, I think, in some cases. But look, the NWO to this day is still one of the most successful uh, products in the WWE catalog in terms of merchandise. Um, it, it, you look at this this crowd shot here from 2015, and there's NWO merchandise there. You could probably watch, you know, Raw this Monday night or tonight, and see NWO merchandise in the crowd that they purchased through the WWE. So, you know, they're still making money off of it. They're not destroying it. They're keeping the merchandise available. They're inducting, you know, the NWO into the Hall of Fame. So I think it. You know, the fact that WWE is promoting the NWO as much as they have and are, and the fact that they're still selling their merchandise kind of um, contradicts the statement that they're trying to kill it. I think they're trying to make money off of it. But I also, at the same time, uh, think that it will always, the NWO will always take a backseat to anything or anything that was WCW original, um, including Sting's return and his positioning in WrestleMania against Triple H. It will always be um, positioned as secondary to anything that's WWE. But that's not the same thing as killing it. That's not the same thing as, you know, disrespecting it. It's just positioning it. And like I said, I don't think it's wrong. I, from the WWE perspective, I, I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. Burroughs wants to know, were you surprised Sting waited so long? <sighs> Um, no, I'm not surprised. I, I, I'm not surprised at all. Sting was a very loyal guy. Now I, you know, what it's interesting. Conrad is, you know, I see Sting a couple times a year and we hang out together and, you know, we were on very, very good terms. And there was a point in time when Steve Morton and I, and, and my wife and Steve's previous wife were pretty good friends. They came out to Wyoming and visited us, you know, for a while back in the late nineties. Um, so we were pretty close, but we never talked about WWE reaching out to him or him or Steve reaching out to WWE. And I know there were probably conversations, but Steve never talked about it. He never used any interest in the WWE or any interest that Vince McMahon may have had in, in Steve. He never used it as leverage to negotiate a deal, never implied it. Whereas oftentimes people did, you know, sometimes it was more subtle than other times, but you know, more often than not, everybody would let you, let me know from time to time that they still had an ongoing relationship with Vince McMahon and the, the door may or may not, you know, always be open for them just to kind of keep everything in check from a negotiation perspective. Steve never did that. Um, he was just so loyal and I think, you know, I, I respected him for it then and, and probably even more so today. I think, uh, it would have probably been in Sting's best interest to, to make a move to WWE, particularly in the late nineties, 98, 99, when or probably 97, 98, it'd be a better time when Sting probably would have had a tremendous amount of leverage and would have made an enormous amount of money. But Steve was very, very loyal to to Turner and to WCW, and I have nothing but respect for him for that. Loyalty is a rare commodity in any business. It's probably a rare commodity in life, uh, but particularly in the professional wrestling industry, and it's one of the reasons I have so much respect for Sting. We uh, we got lots of questions about your favorite version of Sting, and. I guess we should mention that they even included the TNA version. Michael writes, what are Eric's favorite? Uh, what, what is Eric's favorite version of sting surfer sting, crow sting, joker sting, 
WWE staying lots of different versions of the character. Which one's your fave? Well, I'm partial to the, to the crow sting for obvious reasons, because it worked so well. And I think that's what most people, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years from now, when they look back at some of the biggest names in professional wrestling from the late nineties, we'll, we'll look back at sting and that crow character is one of the top characters, uh, or favorites. But I, I have to say the Joker sting that we dabbled with a little bit in TNA was a blast. I mean, Steve did a great job with that character. Um, that was a lot of fun. It didn't last long, but for the brief period of time that we played with that character, uh, that was certainly, you know, doesn't even come close to measuring on the Richter scale of success that the Crow character had. But in terms of it just being fun and interesting and entertaining, it, it was it was great. I had a lot of fun with that, and so did Steve. We see uh, Corporate Kane going for the pin here on John Cena. Another false finish. We're winding things down. We're getting close. Um, there is a, a famous uh, quote here from JBL that we're going to get to in just a minute that I'm going to try to have the audio queued up for uh, because it's just hilarious when we when we see Sting debut here at the very end of the show. By the way, what do you think of uh, Seth's? Oh, there he is. Let's see if we can play it here. I don't know why that tickles me when JBL says that's not staying. That's a picture of sting. And of course the picture (laughs) starts moving and there he is sting on Monday night raw. After all these years, we didn't think it would ever happen. And it has, what we're seeing, of course, and you recognize it. That's the gorilla position, the control center where Vince McMahon is on headset, but he walks right through the curtain and there he is top of the ramp. Sting's on top of his game here. You know, there's some great intensity here. This works. This really works for me. The distraction and somehow with the distraction, it's all that Cena needs. Schoolboy, Cena gets the win and celebrates uh, with a kid in the front row. Pretty special moment. This is awesome. And this, this presentation of Sting here, uh, I don't see anything at all wrong with this. I didn't see it live when it happened, obviously, but uh, I don't see anything wrong with this at all. I mean, this is a win-win-win. Great reaction from uh, Triple H and Stephanie. Great reaction for John Cena. Love the way he jumps into the crowd. That always worked. It worked when we did it with Diamond Dallas Page. That's one of the reasons I think it it got you know DDP over as much as he did when we were trying to you know really redefine his character as that blue collar, you know, all American kind of working, working man's hero guy. And it's certainly working here for John. It just gets the crowd even more revved up. And the more revved up the crowd is, the more the people at home feel validated in investing three hours into watching a show. I don't think he could have finished the show any stronger than what we're seeing right here. What a visual with the crowd chanting. Yes, yes, yes. And triple H on the announcer desk yelling. No, it didn't happen. It's awesome. It really is. And you know what is that? What else is awesome is, you know, I used to listen to your uh, your first podcast back in the day, Bischoff on Wrestling, and man, you guys would talk pretty regularly and routinely about whether or not you should have tucked your T-shirts. And thankfully, you've been cured of that back during the NWO days, and 
but I know why you did it. I mean, you ever wonder why traditional button ups look so long and baggy? It's because they were never meant to be worn that way. Untuck it shirts were specifically designed to be worn untucked and untuck it is the brand you've been looking for. It's the original untucked shirt, a modern solution to an old problem with no tucking or tailoring required, no matter your size or shape, their shirts are the perfect untucked length. If you've been frustrated with shirt buying in the past, untuck it is going to change your shirt shopping experience. And, uh, I got to tell you with more than 50 fit combinations, untuck it shirts look great on tall, short, slim, athletic guys of all ages. And, uh, I think you should browse them online right now. And you've actually just recently picked up some shirts from untuckit.com. Haven't you? This is so awesome. Again, I'm so excited. It's one of the reasons I love doing this podcast. I've been hearing about untucked shirts for a couple of years now and I'm kind of casually interested, but again, not something that I was you know, inclined to just try and see how I liked it. So when the opportunity came, I thought, okay, I'm going to go online. I'm going to order a couple shirts. I'm going to see if I like it before I talk about it. They just got here yesterday. I just got my, I ordered two shirts right off the bat and they just got here yesterday. And when they got here, I thought, okay, I'm going to give this a shot. Absolutely love them. They are great, easy to order. The selection is awesome. The company's been around for you know a couple of years now. Great, great service. Love the product. Can't recommend it enough. And I typically don't wear button-down shirts because I can't find a fit that I really like. And you know, again, if you're wearing a button-down shirt and the, the tails are too long and you just look sloppy, uh, these are great fitting. They look great, uh, great quality. Can't recommend recommend them highly enough. The shopping experience is a breeze too, but don't take my word for it. Untuck it for yourself. Visit untuckit.com and use the promo code 83 weeks and you'll get 20% off your first order. They even offer free shipping and returns. Not that you're going to return it on all orders in the U S that's U N T U C K I T.com untuckit.com. And the promo code is 83 weeks for 20% off your first order. Uh, but we did not have 20% off of this show. This was a long raw, but I really enjoyed watching it with you for the very first time. And, uh, we got to see sting make his raw debut and man, they made the most of it. You talk about going off the air with a bang. They were checking all the boxes here. Yeah. This three hours, uh, the three hour raw from this episode, uh, it was an okay show leading up to this moment. In my opinion, I'd probably rank it a six on a scale of one to 10, up until the debut was Sting, and that last two minutes of the show or four minutes of the show made the previous two hours and 56 minutes worth it. It was really great. Next week, it's going to be really great, too. We're doing Clash of the Champions 30, which went down on January 25th, 1995. Uh, so just a couple of days removed uh, from the 25-year anniversary, which is just hard to imagine that that's real. Uh, we'll see Arn Anderson defending his world television championship against Johnny B. Bad. We'll see Alex Wright in singles competition with Bobby Eaton. We'll see Harlem heat with sister Sherry defending their tag straps against stars and stripes, which is Marcus Alexander Bagwell, the Patriot. We'll also see a singles match with the guardian angel, the former big boss man as the special guest referee when sting tries to take on avalanche and then in your main event. It's Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage with Jimmy Hart in their corner, taking on the taskmaster, Kevin Sullivan and the dreaded butcher. That's right. Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake. Oh, event. God. And it's all going down from Nevada 
Caesar's palace, Las Vegas, Nevada. You don't want to miss it. Clash of the champions 30. I'm pretty excited about this show. Uh, just because I love this era WCW, because it's really easy to sort of poke the bear with Eric Bischoff. Uh, things are going to change in just about a year and a half though. We know the NWO is coming and WCW is off to the races, but, uh, avalanche and sting Hogan and, and, and savage against Kevin Sullivan and beefcake. Eh, I don't know about that. Uh, tune in next week. We get to, uh, poke the bear again with Eric Bischoff right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.